If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Old Testament book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, right before Matthew. I recently finished teaching through the Minor Prophets in my Sunday school class, and I really enjoyed it, and I hope the students did. Uh, I got good feedback. And I thought, as I went through it, I'm really not mining everything there is to get out of these minor prophets, doing one prophet a week. And so I thought with this Christmas season, with a couple of opportunities to preach some Christmas sermons from the Old Testament, I thought we would go to Malachi and see something that we don't ordinarily see. We get to see the promised Christ um, here in the Old Testament. Malachi contains within it promises that God makes to his people to send them a Messiah or an anointed Savior. And in Malachi, several clear promises that are fulfilled with the coming of Jesus, which we celebrate this time of year. Malachi might seem like a strange text. Some of us may have never heard a sermon on the book of Malachi or ever heard someone teach about the prophet and his message. But in Malachi, as we will find, his message is very relevant for us today. He addresses things like, Spiritual apathy, spiritual sluggishness, greed, selfishness, faithlessness, marriage and divorce, and among many other relevant sins. And Malachi's word is not only relevant to us as part of God's word, but because he addresses the same problems found among God's people that were there then and that are here today. And so let me begin with prayer, and then we'll hear what God would have us to hear from Malachi. Let's pray. Father, as we embark upon this study, we pray that you would be with us. Lord, we pray that you would go ahead of us, that you would indeed plow the ground, that the seed of your truth may be implanted deep within us, and that we might receive with meekness this implanted word, as James tells us, which is able to save our souls. Father, we ask that, that we would see Christ, that we would see ourselves, that we would see you in all of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And so to begin, let me set the scene for us. Malachi can be a foreign place for us. Old Testament history may be fuzzy within us, so let me catch us up to speed. Most of us know what happens in Genesis. God creates the world, man screws it all up. God goes, finds a man named Abram, sets him apart to be his people. He narrows that people to a specific clan, and that clan gets enslaved in Egypt. God raises them out of Egypt by his mighty arm and puts them in the promised land. God tells them everything they need to do, every jot and tittle required of them for them to retain possession of the promised land. But they wouldn't do it, and they couldn't do it. And time after time again, they get themselves into trouble. They're worshiping after foreign gods. They're chasing the pleasures of this world. And again and again, God raises up a Savior. He raises up judges. He eventually, after much pestering from his people, raises up a king named Saul. He was a terrible king. He's replaced with David, a man after God's own heart. David's son Solomon comes to the throne. He's the wisest man to ever live. And even in all of his wisdom... His heart is led astray. And this eventually leads to his sons bickering and fighting, and they split the kingdom, the northern and the southern kingdom. And both of those kingdoms drifted into pagan idolatry and wickedness. And thus, like the faithful father that he is, God disciplined his son. 
The northern kingdom was invaded and defeated around 720 B.C. And likewise, the southern kingdom, specifically Jerusalem, was besieged by Nebuchadnezzar II in 589 B.C. And within three years, the southern kingdom had fallen too. The remaining Jews were deported, carried off into Babylon. However, even though thousands of Jews were forcibly taken from their homeland and placed in a foreign, strange land, they also knew the Word of God and the promises therein, where God had promised to rebuild their temple, to restore their land, to restore the fortunes of the people. Thus, it was with much anticipation that some of the exiled Jews in Babylon were able to go back to Jerusalem. God had worked in the heart of the pagan emperor to grant them favor. Men like Nehemiah, Ezra, and Zerubbabel. They were able to return back to the promised land and rebuild the temple after 70 years of exile. They made their way back. With much opposition, they still fought, and they rebuilt the walls and rebuilt the temple. And that brings us to Malachi. Malachi lived about 100 years after the people had returned from exile in Babylon, about 420 B.C., And his messages are aimed at the people who had been living in Jerusalem for some time. The temple had been rebuilt, had been standing for a while, but things weren't going as they thought they should. You can remember back to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, how God's people were so prone to neglect the proper worship of God and to turn after the ways of the world, to turn towards pagan idolatry. And then we read prophets like Haggai and Zechariah, that the people returned from exile with big expectations, big hopes for what Jerusalem would look like. This is the time, they were thinking. God's going to rebuild His temple and reign from this place. They remembered the temple of old, Solomon's temple in all of its glory. And they longed for those good old days. And they remembered the promises of God, how, how He would build up this new Jerusalem and all of the glory would come to it, how God would reign from the throne of David. He would rule all the nations from this throne in Jerusalem. But they look at Jerusalem now, in Malachi's day, and that's not what they see. They see injustice. They see corruption. Rather than peace and prosperity, they see problems and trials. And they see the pagans flourishing around them. And they're faced with a question. Did the exile actually do anything for the people of God? Did they learn anything? The answer is no. They're just as unfaithful to God after the exile as their ancestors were prior to the exile. And the corruption of this new generation is what is on display in the book of Malachi. Malachi is framed in a series of six arguments, six disputes, we could say. Usually begin with God making a claim or an accusation. And then Israel responds usually disagreeing with God's assessment. And then God gets the final word. And this happens over six different disputes. Let's look at the first dispute. It's found in chapter 1. I'll start reading in verse 1, going through verse 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, 
we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And so God begins his oracle to Malachi with a statement that he still loves Israel. Despite all of her failings, he gives us the remarkable statement, I still love you, he says. And Esau responds rather, or Israel responds rather rudely, saying, how have you shown us your love? And so God reminds them, he says, I, I chose you. I chose you in Jacob, over and against the older brother Esau. God sovereignly elected Jacob and not Esau, Israel and not Edom, who was a descendant of Esau, to be the true recipients of God's covenantal love and blessing, while Esau and his offspring, the Edomites, came to ruin. You can read the prophet Obadiah about that, or you can go back to Genesis 25 to 27. But for us, this dispute is a reminder of ourselves. How often do we find ourselves asking God, how have you loved me? Where is your love? How have you loved me, God? Have you asked yourself that question? God, how have you loved me? Where is your love for me right now in this moment? Because it it often is a temptation for us when we're going through a trial... We're going through some sort of disappointment. We quickly look around us. We look at our surroundings, at our situation, what looks like fruitlessness, what looks like opposition, what looks like trials, and we can so quickly question God's love and His goodness. We're like Israel looking at our shoddy little temple and looking at the pagan nations flourishing, and we're saying, how have you loved me? Look at them. How have you loved me, God? If you really loved me, you wouldn't make me live like this. You wouldn't make me go through this trial. And often what motivates the questions is a disappointment in this life. We're like the Israelites pining after the days of old and the temple in its former glory. And we see what's here and now and we're disappointed. Maybe it's our lives, our our performance, our marriages. We, We look at what's in front of us and we despair and we fail to zoom out and to remember what God has done, what He has done before. We forget God's love. We forget His prior action of electing and saving us, making us to be part of Israel rather than condemned Edom. We forget God's prior declaration that before the foundation of the world, He would redeem a people, and He would make us a part of that people, and He would do so with full knowledge of the kind of people we would be. We're like the Israelites, failing to honor God as we should, failing to love Him as we ought, looking only at our circumstances rather than trusting in the God behind them. And yet God chose us, not because we're faithful, but because He loved us. And that's the good news, that God saves people not because they are lovely, but out of His electing love. Believers, when you're discouraged, when you look around and you see disappointment, when you look at yourself and you're tempted to despair, don't let that doubt lead you to doubt God's love. Remember that He chose you, and not because you were so lovely, but in fact in spite of your unloveliness. And let His electing love warm your heart again. 
Let his choosing of you draw you back to him. And remember his great love for you. And remember that Remember what we celebrate during this Christmas season is not merely that Christ came, but why Jesus came. God shows his love to us, not only in choosing undeserving sinners, but in the manner in which he saves them. Remember Romans 5.8, God shows us his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have to remember that the Christ of the manger becomes the Christ of the cross so that a forgetful people would remember and find their salvation in Him. And so when you celebrate Christmas, always remember Good Friday and Easter. God loved you not only in choosing you, but in sacrificing His Holy Son for you. And if you're not a believer, then let this text ring in your ears. You are in this text. Did you see it? You are Esau. You are condemned. Even though you vow to rebuild, God will tear you down. Even though you think you can build your life on your own strength, God will come. And Christ's coming at Christmas ought to startle you because the sovereign king has come and he has proven all-powerful and victorious, even over death itself. And if you reject him, you will meet him, but you will meet him as judge. And so come to Christ tonight by faith, and you too can be the recipient of God's love. Trust in this Christ before it's too late. Indeed, if you hear my words, it is not too late for you. You are not too far gone, too old, too young. You're not too sinful to be made an object of God's holy love. If you stand in your unbelief, you will also stand before Him in the final judgment day. And you will be finally destroyed just like Edom. So do not delay. Do not put it off until later, for your end is closer than any of us will imagine. Come to Christ and taste of His love. Second, let's look at our second dispute in the text, starting in verse 6 of chapter 1. Here Malachi goes to accuse the Israelites of despising God and of defiling the temple itself with their heartless and profane worship. Let's look at the end of chapter 1, or the rest of chapter 1. As a son honors his father and a servant his master, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. 
For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. For in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and you bring it as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So this passage begins with God saying in verses 6 and 7 that the people have defiled their worship and have despised the name of God. And they say, well, how have we done that? And God responds by looking at their worship, by looking at their offerings. Rather than bringing the first fruits of their possessions, the, the best of their flocks for sacrifice, they're bringing the sick animals, the lame, the deformed, the weakest, least valuable parts of their flock. In short, they're giving God that which costs them nothing, and they're holding back the best for themselves. And so we, if we look into chapter 2, we see God condemns the priests as well. They not only tolerate this heartless and faithless worship, but they're guilty of participating in it. They've caused many to stumble, Malachi says. They have corrupted the covenant of Levi and their priestly heritage. And so God promises to judge them because they show partiality in their instruction. Verse 9 of chapter 2. And so, in totality, we see that all of God's people, the leadership and the laity, are all condemned as faithless before God. They withhold their best. They give God the scraps. They're faithless in their instruction, and they're faithless in their obedience to it. Now, I wonder if you have felt that temptation. Do you see something of yourself in this text? To worship God with the leftovers and to hold back the best for yourself. Surely we've all been guilty of that. We've spent the best parts of our time on our favorite pastimes or our favorite hobbies, on our favorite pleasures, and yet we neglect the worship of God. We neglect the gathering of the body of Christ so we can instead go and play with worldly things. Or maybe we indulge in entertainment to the neglect of our own spiritual condition. We'd rather watch TV and Scroll on our phones while the Word of God remains collecting dust on our shelf. We fail to pray because we've convinced ourselves we're just too busy. When in reality we know that if we're too busy to pray, then we are indeed too busy. And we should cut out things that aren't prayer. Indeed, if we're really honest, we're all tempted to come with empty hearts into the house of God to prayer meeting. Expecting that God's really not going to do anything anyway. And then we get out of prayer time exactly what we expected. Nothing. We're like the Israelites who said of the worship of God, what a weariness this is. And we snort at it. What an offense to a God who has saved a people. To say that the things of this world are more precious to us than true communion with the living God. To offer to God the leftovers, the scraps that cost us nothing, but reserving the best of our time and our attention and our money and our energy 
for the things that we prize more than God himself. When we read this text, we stand condemned, just like the Israelites. But Scripture doesn't leave us without hope. Praise be to God that the Lord does not treat us the same way that we treat Him. You see, God did not keep back for Himself the spotless prized lamb. He didn't send some worthless animal to be slaughtered as sacrifice that cost him nothing. Instead, God sent forth the perfect lamb, the spotless sacrifice of Christ to be the atoning offering in the place of us, an unfaithful people. That's the good news of Christmas, that the Holy Son of God has become the perfect substitute for an unfaithful people. Jesus died on the cross for a rebellious people and his atonement is sufficient for the worst of violators. The most egregious rebels, the most heinous blasphemers can be forgiven because the perfect sacrifice was substituted in our place. Remember that good news, that Christ has taken away our reproach and that God now delights in our sacrifices. Not because you're so faithful, but because our works have been cleansed by another. Our acts of devotion, our worship, our spiritual sacrifices that we read about in Romans 12 are a delightful and pleasing aroma to God because they're offered by our great high priest at the cost of his own life. Even our feeble prayers at prayer meeting are heard because they come not from us, but they go through our great high priest right into the ear of the Father himself. What an encouragement it is to know that it's because of Christ's perfection we can approach the throne of God again and approach it with boldness because we've been assured access to the Father because of His perfect atoning work through the Son. Don't let your disappointing performance deter you from coming back to Him. Come back to God. Repent of your sin. Be restored to full communion with God who calls you back. He's like the father who runs towards the prodigal, joyfully embracing him with your sovereign love. And he's already slaughtered the calf in your place. We can worship God with full hearts because we know that the best was sacrificed in our place. And because we have a faithful high priest, and we can know that we are fully atoned for and fully purified from our sinful actions. Even though we have snorted at the worship of God, God has instead transformed our feeble attempts at worship into an aroma that's pleasing to Him. Praise be to God for His atoning work through the Son, which woos us back to Him, even when we find ourselves drifting and unfaithful like the Israelites. And if you've never come to God, then you need to know that no sacrifice of your own can ever make you be at peace with Him. No good works, no acts of charity, no acts of piety, no no prayers or Bible reading can ever bring peace between you and God. Only Christ, only His sacrifice can perfectly atone for your sins. So don't linger clinging to your own works. Come to Christ and embrace Him. He asks of you only to believe, and by believing have life. Believe and be cleansed of your sins and you too will be embraced like the prodigal son was embraced by his father. That's the second dispute. The third dispute, chapter 2, 
starting in verse 10. It begins with God accusing the men of Israel of treachery against him and against their own wives. Let's look at verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So here in the third dispute, God condemns the Israelite men of a toxic combination of idolatry and divorce. Israelite men were divorcing their wives and marrying pagan women. And they were adopting the pagan religious practices of these foreign women. You see the story Similar story in Nehemiah chapter 13, if you remember back there. Even though the Israelite men were fine with their idolatrous worship and their divorcing of the wives of their youth, God, through Malachi, condemns them for violating the covenant. By violating their marriage covenant, Israel was also violating their covenant with the Lord, and thereby demonstrating very clearly that they were not like Yahweh. This temptation towards faithlessness, particularly faithlessness to the marriage covenant, is a perennial temptation for all mankind. Our eyes are prone to wander and our hearts follow after our eyes. Rather than keeping our gaze on God, we let our gaze linger upon the spouse of another. And when we give in to that, it's not long after our hearts follow. We've all felt this tug when we're discontented, when we're frustrated with the spouse that God has given to us, we can let our, our eyes wander. We can let our mind run. We linger over illicit pictures or we fantasize about what it would be like to be married to so-and-so. We dream what it would be like to be freed from this prison of our current situation. We can even be tempted to rationalize it and adapt our religion to fit our desires. God wants me to be happy, right? God wouldn't want me to stay in this marriage and be miserable, and so I'll just have a little taste. We're like Eve in the garden whose eyes fixed on the forbidden fruit and saw that it was a delight to the eyes. But when the gaze wasn't enough, she also saw that it was a delight to the taste. 
And one little taste was enough to reveal that her heart had forsaken a holy God and instead replaced it with another, the God of her own desires. That's the ploy of Satan. And he still uses it today because it's still effective. He baits the hook. He offers us happiness. He tempts us to forget and then question God's goodness. And he offers us a little indulgence. But the taste always comes with a hook. Perhaps you're in a similar situation tonight. Perhaps you're discontented and you felt your eyes wandering. Well, God would have you hear this text and to hear the condemnation therein. That faithlessness in marriage is also faithlessness to God. Remember that adultery begins in the heart and it involves our eyes long before it ever gets to the bed. And be warned that God sees all and He knows all and He is calling you to repent. Repent tonight. Run away from the temptation. Keep your feet far from the adulteress's house, Proverbs says. Guard your heart and guard your eyes, for from it flows the spring of life. And in the midst of the temptation and the battle, remember God. Remember that Yahweh loved Israel like a bridegroom loves his bride. And remember that this theme of God as a bridegroom is eventually picked up in the New Testament, isn't it? Christ is called the faithful bridegroom that defends the honor and purity of his bride, even including his own death for her. Remember Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing, that she might be holy. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. That's the good news of the Gospel, that Christ came and He died for an unfaithful people. He came and washed His bride of all of her adulterous desires, all of her illicit looks. And if you're trusting in Jesus, then hear this good news. You too are washed, Scripture says. You are forgiven. You are sanctified. You've been made holy because of Jesus' sacrifice. So don't go back to the temptation. Run from it. Remember Christ's love for you. How much He gave for you. And let His sacrifice be the impetus to help you continue on in the battle for holiness and purity in your marriage. Don't listen to the lies of Satan and the lies of this world that would have you pursue happiness through divorce. God hates divorce. And the people of God must battle against it. And in the midst of the battle, whether you're winning or you're losing, remember God's grace. That Christ came and died for the unfaithful and the ungodly, and that nobody is beyond that cleansing grace. Nobody's too sinful, too defiled, too far gone, too impure to be outside of God's purifying grace. And so come to Christ again. Be reconciled. Be forgiven. Be purified of your sin, and you too can be restored to full communion with Him. That's the offer of the gospel for each and every one of us tonight. And that's the offer that's pictured for us in the Lord's table. That no matter how much we have defiled ourselves, 
God has made a way through Christ for us to be restored and made clean. No matter how dirty we are by sin or polluted by indulgence, Christ has made atonement for us. The blood and the body of Christ pictured in the table reminds for us, brings to our minds the sacrificial work of Jesus in our place. His purity for our impurity. His faithful standing in the place of our unfaithfulness. His singular devotion to God in the place of our adulterous and wandering hearts. If you're a believer who's pursuing God like the saints described in Acts chapter 2, devoted to the apostles' teaching in God's Word and to the fellowship of the body of Christ and to prayer, then join us at the table. But if you're not trusting in Christ, or if you're out of fellowship with the body of Christ, then let the elements pass. First be reconciled with God, and then join us at the Lord's table. I'm going to pray, and then our table servants will come. Holy Father, we praise you and thank you that there has been a sacrifice of atonement, a propitiating, a wrath-cleansing atonement in the place of a sinful people like us. And we marvel that all it takes is faith. All we must do is believe, and we too are reckoned as righteous because of Christ's work in our place. Thank you for this good news, Lord. May it spur us on in our battle for holiness. Make us a people ever overflowing with gratitude because of the work that Christ has done in our place. Please bless these elements and this time together. Use it for the building up of your people that we might be made holy and your name might be made great. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.